Welcome to The Table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. So I remember meeting this man once during my chaplaincy internship at Duke Hospital. And I don't really remember what exactly landed him in the hospital, but it was definitely something sudden and and life-altering. But I do remember I do remember what he told me. He told me that he believed it was an answer to prayer. He was, as he called himself, a hopeless drunk. And he had prayed to God to stop him from drinking. And the next thing he knew, he woke up in the hospital, helpless and weak, having been detoxed by the doctors while he slept so that that they could better treat whatever was ailing him. By his estimation... God had put him in the hospital as some kind of, of wake-up call. And I had my, my doubts about that, but it was not my place as the visiting chaplain to tell him that I, that I doubted that God had deliberately reached down from heaven to touch his neurons and his brain or the sponges and his lungs or whatever it was that landed him in the emergency room. I... I, did, I didn't tell him because it wasn't my, my place to tell him that, that I doubted, that, that God had as precisely as a surgeon would tweaked his body just so as to bring on this medical catastrophe, so bad and yet no worse, calibrated to bring him to his senses, but not quite yet to meet his maker. It, it just wasn't my place to say that I didn't believe that was how God worked. And, and then I thought it, it all much more likely just a simple cause and effect of his chronic abuse of his own body. It wasn't my place in that moment to ask him, and what about the other disasters that filled the rooms around you? It, it wasn't my place to ask about those. And it surely wasn't my place to ask, and, and, and what about my grandfather's stroke? That, that disabled him in the prime of his life and forced him like a toddler to, to learn to speak and walk again? Did God, did God cause that too? Or, or what about my friend who, who, who never shows her hands because of how her fingers and nails are deformed? A result, the doctors say, is likely because her mom, who she never knew, did cocaine while she was in the womb my friend who was raised by her grandfather instead, 
who sexually abused her from the age of six. What about her? Did God cause all of that? Why? To ask such questions was clearly not my place in that hospital room. Instead, my part in his drama, my line was to ask him how it was that he found God in that moment of crisis when so many would feel themselves completely abandoned by God. I, I was genuinely curious to know where this man saw God at work in his life and what, what help he might need after the emergency to sustain the relationship he longed to have with this God and this relationship with his new sobriety. Because whether or not God had put this man in the hospital, or, or whether there was some kind of greater purpose in it all, what I did know was that the Spirit of God had had certainly raced to his room quicker than the on-call chaplain, and this God was was already at work, hard pumping absolution through his IV and dosing him up with repentance and sustaining him with mashed up mouthfuls of the hope of resurrection. This man, though, had, had he heard at that moment the parable of the fruitless fig tree in Luke's gospel today, would have understood the voice of the gardener to be God. Did you hear it as Renee read the text for us today? He, he would have recognized the voice of God's saying, oh, your tree is dead? Well, let me dig around in there a little bit, throw some crap on it, throw some manure on it, and see, see how he comes out. See if he'll bear fruit, and if he doesn't, I'll just cut him down. And if we're honest, this is how many of us suspect God works. And even when we, we don't suspect God works this way, our minds can't help but go there, right, in times of tragedy and disaster and illness and, and unimaginable suffering. Because if not, how, how do we make sense of the evil and suffering in this world and, and where God is within it or around it? We suspect God works in this way, that God is the gardener poking around and digging at us, the fruitless fig tree throwing some crap on us to see how we'll do, to see what we can handle, to test our faith and endurance and to see if we can bear fruit in the struggle. Does God, does God work that way? And if not, how do we make sense of God in light of the suffering in our world? How do we make sense of a good God in light of all of the bad stuff that happens? Well, I invited you, I invited you to ask me anything. And this, this conundrum, this problem was at the heart, at the center of so many of your questions. How does an all-loving, all-powerful God allow things like human trafficking? Why, why did I lose both my parents? Does God hate me? Is God trying to teach us something through this pandemic? Is this, is this God's righteous judgment and, and writing of the world throwing a bit of crap on us? How, how do we make sense of things like, like sociopathy and pedophilia? Are these evils in the human condition mistakes that God has made? Stephen Fry, a popular comedian in, in the UK, caused a stir a few years back in an interview on TV. Um, su suppose... It's all true, the interviewer said, and you're at the pearly gates, and you're confronted by God. What will you, Stephen Fry, say to him or her? 
I'd say bone cancer in children? What's that about, God? How, how did you create a world in which there is so much misery that, that, is, that is not our fault? It's, it's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain, he said? I wonder if you've had a similar conversation with an unbelieving friend or, or a family member. Maybe not this brazen, but something along these lines. And often when we encounter someone like this, with an argument like this, we believers feel like we have to defend God in this moment. To speak up on God's behalf, to justify the ways of God. Or, or maybe, maybe you felt like you wanted to speak up on God's behalf, but, but you just didn't have the theological vocabulary to go to bat with such an argument or such a person. We have this desire as believers often to defend God and try to explain why this kind of evil exists in the world, given who we know God to be good and loving. This desire to speak up for God as it relates to this particular massive theological question about suffering and evil and God's love and God's power, it's actually called theodicy. Theodicy is this theological word that is a combination of two Greek words smushed together. Theo, the Greek word for God, and dikaios, meaning, meaning justification. A theodicy is a, a God justification, a God defense. And Stephen Fry is not the first, nor will he be the last to raise this issue. For centuries, theologians and philosophers have talked about and written about and pontificated about the problem of evil. It's a question that we ask all the time in our lives, whether or not we even do it intentionally. It is, I would suggest, the most massive question about our faith, and it's, it's called the problem of evil. And it goes like this. Given the indisputable evidence of evil in the world, like bone, like bone cancer in children, or human trafficking, or sexual abuse, or how some people have more money than they know what to do with while others starve and die of malnutrition. Given the indisputable evidence that evil exists, God is either powerless and can't do anything about it, which would make God not God then, right? Or, or God does have the power to do something and chooses to, to do nothing anyway, refuses to do anything about it, which would mean that God is not good or loving at all, right? Either way, the argument goes, the biblical claim that, that God is both all-powerful and all-loving is then absurd and indefensible. And, and and to come to such an atheistic conclusion is understandable to us, right? There is this sort of atheism that is entirely understandable, and it's the kind that has been forged in suffering. This kind of atheism is not the kind that's, that's arrogant and flippant and, and, and intellectually superior to faith and religious belief. No, this atheism is an inability to believe born out of an empathy for those who have been horribly crushed and bruised in this life, not, not an atheism of comfort, but an atheism of agony. 
that, that begrudging conclusion of this cosmic loneliness that arises out of suffering and injustice, and it's understandable. And it's this big problem, this huge question for us as believers. But it's actually an even bigger problem for those who, who, who don't believe, for unbelievers to address. It's, it's a bigger prob- problem for non-believers because to, to even talk coherently about such a thing as evil requires moral absolutes grounded in some kind of trans, trans, transcendent truth. Well, without that, how can we, we judge whether something is evil or, or, or something is good? All we would have in the universe are things that just happen. No right, no wrong, just, just things that happen. But saying that the problem of evil is, is bigger for non-believers, it still doesn't explain why God allows evil. We might say, well, human beings have free will, and, and they've rebelled against God, and so, so that's why we see evil in the world. But that, that still doesn't explain why evil came to exist in the first place. Why? Why would a good being like Satan before the fall or, or Adam and Eve before they fell, why, why would a perfectly good being be inclined to choose evil over good? Where, where did that impulse come from? And, and why did God permit it? These are massive, hard things to reflect on, especially if we're in the midst of of suffering ourselves or have had some great evil done to us or have seen evil done to others. And, and while, while the Bible doesn't give us a full answer why, why a good God allows evil to take place, it does have much to say about evil and suffering. In our scriptures today, Jesus and Paul tell different stories of disaster, both seeking God's meaning in them. Did you hear the the scriptures? First, Paul tells a cautionary tale of the people of Israel in the wilderness going astray and awry and being struck down and destroyed as serpents and by the destroyer. Paul does not accuse God of the killing of the wilderness. Instead, he, he comes to the conclusion that it was their own evil and their own idolatry that destroyed them and their own abandonment of God's covenant that led them to their downfall. Much like my take on on what brought that self-proclaimed hopeless drunk to Duke Hospital, right? It, It wasn't God. It was his own habits of addiction. Paul similarly asserts that Israel's demise was was their own doing. And in the midst of the dire warnings, God continues to remain faithful to them. Jesus, though, in Luke, is quite different. Before he sets into the parable of the fruitless fig tree, there are people around him asking the same questions that we're asking today. How, Jesus, do, do we make sense of the suffering in Galilee, Jesus? And the way they, they ask their questions leads Jesus to ask in return, why do you ask this? Do you think that because these Galileans suffered, that, that they were worse sinners than all the other Galileans who didn't suffer? No, Jesus says, the disasters, natural and unnatural, that, that befell the people of Galilee and of, of Salome, murdered by the empire and destroyed by accident, they, they were no judgment upon them. 
the, the physical consequences of Pilate's actions and the, and the laws of physics did not differentiate between the upright and the scoundrel, the, the deserving and the undeserving sinner. God doesn't pick winners and losers, Jesus says. And I bet if we had visited the hospital wards in the days of, of, of that construction disaster in Salome, that we would have heard some people there who wondered why God had abandoned them and others who, who, who wondered what God was telling them and some who asked what they, what they had done to deserve such punishment and some who cried out with, with simple gratitude that they had escaped with their lives with one more chance to get things right before God. And like at Duke Hospital, it would, it would not be our place in that moment of pain to, to correct them, nor to, to question their theology. It would, it would certainly not be our place to say, God doesn't give you more than you can handle, so buck up to those who, whose hands are overflowing with grief or twisted with pain or wrung out with sorrow. So, so then what is our theodicy, our, our God defense? How then do we make sense of or explain evil and suffering in light of a good and all-loving and all-powerful God? What, what is our role as the church, as Christians in community with one another, and as an example to the world when, when we're faced with the questions that naturally arise after a disaster, personal or communal, asking where where is God when trouble happens and, and what it means when God is or is not seen to intervene there? What, what is our line? Well, well, St. Augustine helps us. He spent all of his life trying to ask this question and anguish over this question in his confessions. At first, St. Augustine, like for us, it, 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 it was this cosmic question. Where and whence is evil? How did it creep in? What is the root and what is its seed? Augustine writes. And then for Augustine, it, it turned inward. Not only are the atrocities that others commit inexplicable, but, but there is dark mystery and evil that drives my own behavior. My heart is an abyss, he wrote. I, I became evil for no reason like me with the hopeless drunk at Duke Hospital and Paul with, with reflecting on the suffering of Israel, Augustine then reaches the argument of free choice, of free will, and the misuse of the goodwill God created for us. But this still isn't an answer. It's not a solution for him. It's, it's just this plausible halfway house with room to hold all of these things in tension. St. Augustine said that it, it's, a, it's an anchor in the storm, a lighthouse that holds out hope, but it's not an answer. And that's when, when Augustine comes to accept what is for all of us to accept, that evil is, is not to be made sense of. To make sense of it, to, ha to have an explanation for it, is to be able to identify a place for it in the world, but, but evil and suffering is, is not what ought to be. It doesn't have a place in creation. The, the violation we pr protest, and when we fall prey to the need for, for intellectual mastery, we end up naturalizing evil and thus 
eviscerating and undercutting the ability to protest against it. We can't protest what is natural. We can't lament what is meant to be. The price we pay for explaining evil is to give up naming and opposing it. When we try to extinguish the dark mystery of evil with the light of explanation, we, we dim the radiance of beauty in the world and we forfeit the joy that attends those moments when we think, ah, oh, that is how it's meant to be. To explain evil is, is to explain away love. And so late in Augustine's life, those theological reflections came to shape much of Christian thought, his, did. St. Augustine, late in life, realized that our Christian defense in the face of suffering is not to offer a solution to the problem, an answer for the question of evil, but instead to offer a vision of the gracious action of God who takes on evil. The cross of Jesus Christ, the God who becomes human, the sight of this cosmic inversion where all is not supposed to be, all that is evil is absorbed by the Son of God taken to the depths of hell and vanquished by the resurrection. Evil isn't answered, it's overcome. God doesn't abstractly solve a problem. God inhabits and absorbs the mess that we've made of the world rather than clamor to find some kind of answer to the problem of evil and various abstractions of free will or, or creation's corrosion of the good. Our appeal, our role as Christians is to the mystery at the heart of the Christian faith that a humble God endured evil in order to overcome it. The point isn't that God has a plan. The point is that God wins. And, and no, this is not an answer, but it is a Christian response because hope is found not in intellectual mastery, but in divine solidarity. The cup that Jesus drinks is the cup of our suffering filled with the wine-dark sea of anguish. This is the historical scandal of God becoming flesh and taking on the injustice of our world onto himself and then bursting forth from the grave for its death. God doesn't give us an answer. God does one better. God gives us himself. I offer this to you in the name of God the Father, in the name of Christ his Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. But I never will forget one night very late. It was around midnight. And you can have some strange experiences at midnight. The telephone started ringing and I picked it up. On the other end was an ugly voice. That voice said to me in substance, nigger, we are tired of you and your mess now. And if you aren't out of this town in three days, we're going to blow your brains out and blow up your house. I've heard these things before, but for some reason that night it got to me. I turned over and I tried 
to go to sleep, but I couldn't sleep. Frustrated, bewildered. And then I got up and went back to the kitchen and I started warming some coffee, thinking that coffee would give me a little relief. And then I started thinking about many things. I pulled back on the theology and philosophy that I had just studied in the universities trying to give philosophical and theological reasons for the existence and the reality of sin and evil. But the answer didn't quite come there. I sat there and thought about a beautiful little daughter who had just been born about a month earlier. We have four children now, but we only had one then. She was the darling of my life. I'd come in night after night and see that little gentle smile. I sat at that table thinking about that little girl and thinking about the fact that she could be taken away from any minute. And I started thinking about a dedicated, devoted, and loyal wife who was over there asleep. She could be taken from me. I could be taken from her. And I got to the point that I couldn't take it any longer. I was weak. Something said to me, you can't call on Daddy now. He's up in Atlanta, 175 miles away. You can't even call on Mama now. You've got to call on that something and that person that your Daddy used to tell you about. That power that can make a way out of nowhere. I discovered then that religion had to become real to me, and I had to know God for myself. And I bowed down over that cup of coffee. I never will forget it. Oh, yes, I prayed a prayer, and I prayed out loud that night. I said, Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. I think I'm right. I think the cause that we represent is right. But Lord, I must confess that I'm weak now, I'm faltering, I'm losing my courage. I can't let the people see me like this because if they see me weak and losing my courage, they will begin to get weak. It seemed at that moment that I could hear an inner voice saying to me, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. And lo, I will be with you even until the end of the world.